It is good to be with you all. Don't say that enough, but it is always a huge encouragement to me just to, to be here and to, to see all of you. And yeah, this is, this is the church. This is our church. And I'm encouraged by you all. And I pray and hope you are encouraged by one another as well. All right, we're going to be in Psalm 2 today. I've mentioned that we are going to start Hebrews in the fall. When exactly fall is, I haven't determined yet. But we are going to start Hebrews soonish. And uh, the book of Hebrews begins, as you may know, by quoting a bunch of psalms. And the ways in which Hebrews quotes the psalms and uses the psalms can be a little bit surprising at times. The, the author of Hebrews finds and sees Jesus in the psalms in ways that are a bit surprising. So as we begin to wrap up our summer series on the psalms, I thought as a way to transition and prepare for Hebrews, we could look at some of these psalms that Hebrews quotes from. So today we're going to be in Psalm 2. Now, a lot of the Psalms and much of the Bible, we can read and understand and apply to our lives today without too much trouble. That was true, I would say, with Psalm 103, which we spent a few weeks on. You know, when Psalm 103 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. We don't really have a hard time resonating with that, understanding that, drawing the comforts from that. Right? Similarly, Psalm 130, which we, we looked at last week. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Again, it, it's not particularly hard for us to resonate with those words with that cry of crying out to God to be heard. But other, other psalms and other parts of the Bible take a bit more effort. We read them and we aren't exactly sure what they're saying, what they meant originally, what, how we might apply them to our lives today. And Psalm, one, psalm 2 would fit into that category of requiring a bit more heavy lifting. Perhaps you've read this psalm and, and thought, who is this talking about? I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from this. Well, I guess I'll move on to the next one. So before we get into Psalm 2, let me give you a few things to keep in mind and consider that will help make sense of this as we go through it. Uh, and so today is going to be a little, bit, uh, a little bit more taxing on our minds. We're going to move to a few different parts of the Bible, um, and, and it Today may be as much about how to read the Bible as what we're reading before us today. Okay, so a couple things about this psalm. First of all, this is what is called a royal psalm. A royal psalm. So it has as its context the courts of the kings of Israel. This is, uh, the, the context here is during the time when Israel had kings during the old period in the Old Testament when they had kings ruling over them. And particularly, royal psalms like this one have in line the, the kings of the line of David, who ruled over the southern tribe of Judah primarily. So I'll use the term, term like Davidic 
kings or Davidic line. That, that just refers to the kings or the lines of David. And so Psalm 2 in its immediate context is about this line of kings from, that, that came from the line of King David. It might have even been used, at least parts of it, in the coronation ceremony. When these kings were installed, parts of this might have been used for that. So that's the first thing. It's a royal psalm. Secondly, in considering how the New Testament uses this psalm, especially the book of Hebrews, as we'll see, we can also say that this is a messianic psalm. That is, it's pointing forward to speaking about a Messiah or anointed one, which is that word means to come. And so when you put these two things together, royal psalm about the kings, messianic psalm about a Messiah to come, you'll find yourself, as you read through this, asking, well, is this speaking about an Old Testament king, or is this speaking about the Messiah, Jesus, to come? And the answer, if we're to read this in light of the whole Bible, is yes. In its immediate context, it's speaking about an Old Testament king, or kings from the line of David. But here's one of the things to consider. God had made a number of promises about the line of kings that would come from David. Things like that there would never uh, cease to be a man to sit on the throne from this, this line. Or that the, the throne of David's kingdom would go on forever, would be established forever. And that one descendant of King David would be like a son and God would be like a father to him. And while some of these subsequent kings after David appear to fulfill some of these things, this is ultimately pointing forward to a greater king, one who would reign forever as the true son of God. And we'll get into some of those prophecies. And so there's a sense as we read through a psalm like this that it kind of leaves you unfulfilled. All of the wonderful things they speak of the Davidic kings and the rule under these Davidic kings seems a bit too good to be true. And that proves to be the case until Jesus. And this leads to what this psalm is really about, both then and now. What it's really about is God's rule. God's rule on earth. You see, God never intended for the rule of, or the reign of King David, or of any of his descendants, or any human ruler, to be the final plan for his kingdom on earth. God was not under any delusion that maybe one of these kings that came from David would be righteous and perfect and wise and good and compassionate, that he would save his people and be a witness to all the peoples of the world. And all the nations of the world would come into to this king. David did good for a while, exemplified this for a while, and then he, he failed miserably. Solomon was similar. And so this psalm, like the rest of the Old Testament, points us to God's ultimate plan to create a people for himself, to, to establish his forever kingdom, to rule on the earth, to display his presence and his grace and his glory. And that plan ultimately involves and revolves around Jesus.
So with that, let's jump into Psalm 2. And we'll unpack some of that more. Hopefully that helps us make sense of this as we go. First three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and, let us, and, and cast away their cords from us. So here we're presented with two sides in a conflict, or at, at, at least one side plotting against another. And on that one side, you have, there's four different words used, nations, peoples, kings, rulers. This all refers to those outside of God's people. At this time, outside of the Gentiles, or sorry, outside of the Jews, that would be Gentiles, non-Jews. Um, this verse is actually quoted in Acts 4 by the early disciples, and instead of saying nations in verse 1, why did the nations raise it? just says Gentiles. So this is those outside of God's people. Now, part of the work, the, the heavy lifting needed in reading a psalm like this is that we need to think in terms of, of salvation history and of where we are at in, in the history of God's salvation. Because at this point in salvation history, God's people is particularly associated with the descendants of Abraham, the Jews, the Israelites. As you likely have heard, God did a number of things with and for these people. He rescued them out of Egypt with mighty acts, revealed that he was with them, that he was powerful to save them. He made a covenant with them to be their God. He gave them his law that they might know how to be his people and also be witnesses of him to all the other peoples. And then whether they were, if they were either faithful or unfaithful to this, God would either bless them or curse them. Now, God does not change in his character, in his will, his purposes. He doesn't change but his revelation of himself and his will is progressive. It happens over time. You know, if you read the beginning of the Bible, you don't learn all of the things about God that the latter parts of the Bible tell us. The, the fullness of the gospel and of God's character even isn't revealed to Adam or to Moses or anyone in the Old Testament. So this is why we need to remember where we are at in the story and the timeline of what God has revealed. And so at this point in time, to be against God's people, the Israelites, is to be against God. This is God's people. And even when God uses other nations to discipline his people, which he does, he, he warns those other nations to not think too highly of themselves, to not think that they could do anything if, if God wasn't involved. This isn't about them. This is about God's purposes. So that's one side of this conflict, the nations, peoples, kings, rulers of the earth. And then on the other side, you have the Lord, which is Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and you have his anointed. Now, in context, God's anointed refers to Israel's king or kings. 
Samuel had anointed date or first Saul and then David as kings over Israel. And in this, he was simply doing what God said. So it was ultimately God anointing Saul and then David as Israel's kings. But this is where the messianic, that is pertaining to the Messiah, hints begin to pop up. Because as you may know, the term, the word anointed, is where the word Messiah and its Greek counterpart, Christ, come from. Because of the many promises and prophecies throughout the Old Testament about an anointed one to come, the Jewish people were waiting expectantly for this unique, great anointed one to come from God and to save them. And when the early disciples quote this psalm in Acts 4, they already clearly understand that this is speaking about Jesus. They say, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And they quote this psalm. So, is Psalm 2 speaking about a human king from the line of David, or is it speaking about the Messiah, Jesus, King of kings, God in the flesh to come? Yes. And the picture that is painted here is of the nations, the peoples, the godless rulers of the world coming together and plotting against Yahweh and his anointed. And by implication, plotting against God's people. Uh, that's another important consideration here. This isn't only about the king. The king represents the people. And so this is about God's people and those who would revolt against them, those who would try to destroy them. Who would say things like, verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is getting at a, a, a desire, a, an attempt to defiantly revolt against God and his authority. To defiantly revolt against God and his purposes, his words, his will. You might think of the image of a boat that's tied to a, that's moored to the shore and is trying to get untied so it can go out into the sea. So these people want to sever any connection to God and to go their own way, no matter how wild and raging the sea may be. And such rebellion is clearly not limited to that time. Of course, it is, in fact, the natural bent of our hearts. Charles Spurgeon writes, However mad the resolution to revolt from God, it is one in which man has persevered ever since creation. And he continues it to this very day. To a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable. But to the safe sinner, it is easy and light. All that to say, sin is more than just doing bad things or things that hurt other people. It includes that. But at its heart, sin is attempting to cut ourselves off from God, to be our own authority, to be our own God. Of course, we may not claim to be in rebellion against God. Perhaps someone's life doesn't look like it's in rebellion against God, but all sin at its heart is that. 
part of what we confess each week in our confession is that this attitude of verses 1 through 3 is the natural sinful bent of our hearts apart from God's mercy. This is not just those people out there. We tend to think that we can be neutral, or at least many in our society tend to think that we can be neutral to God, neither for or against Him. Well, that's not an option. To be neutral on God is to ignore who He is, what He claims, what He deserves, what He's done. It is to ignore His authority and His might, and as well as His compassion and love and His goodness. There's no neutrality. And so you have the nations, the peoples, the kings, and the rulers raging and plotting against God. The psalm continues, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens, that's God, Yahweh, laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision, or that could say he mocks them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So here we see God's response to those who would set themselves as his enemies, who would set themselves against him and his purposes and his people. Namely, God is not at all fearful or anxious that they would succeed. He is not in the least concerned. Because the rebellion against him is in vain. He is, in fact, the one who sits in the heavens, overall, ruling over all things. Now, surely such news, such a proclamation, is meant to do at least two things. First, it is a warning to those who would rebel and revolt against God. An encouragement for them to turn to him and find refuge in him. When God speaks in his wrath and terrifies in his fury, what is meant, what is encouraged, is that the hard and rebellious hearts would wake up from their delusion, would see the vanity of their position, see that there's no no good end that can come to that. And they would come to him. Uh, We'll see this as we go on in verse 10. It says, be warned, rulers, be wise, serve the Lord, come and find refuge in him. Don't continue down this path. I said last week that the Bible presents the greatest motivation in in the world as God's love and mercy. God's love is to compel us. However, for the wicked, for the hard-hearted set in revolt against God, there are threats like this that are also meant to be motivation to turn and come and repent, to jolt someone to reality. But to those who belong to the Lord and to those who belong to the Lord and are experiencing the threats and actions of those set against God and his people, these words are surely meant to be a comfort and a hope and assurance and peace. Such threats, such people pose no real threat to God's purposes, to God's people. You might be thinking of Psalm 46, which we confessed, used as our confession earlier, which we're actually going to sing in a little bit. 
And Psalm 46 teaches us to proclaim very similar language. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He, God, utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. One of the things that I think we could do more of is to reflect on the vast difference between God's disposition towards those who are his beloved children who have come to him versus his disposition to his enemies. And the vast difference between the comfort and assurance that is a right and appropriate for God's people to feel and on the other hand, the fear and trembling that is right and appropriate for his enemies to feel. We tend to downplay both of these and think that God is of meager, mild emotions and temperament to all people. Yeah, maybe he loves his people a little bit more and we tend to downplay this. Uh, Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which many of you have read, writes, what elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin. So it's not how great is your sin or not. That's not the question. But whether the sin comes to, sinner comes to him. Whatever our offense, he deals gently with us. If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us language from Revelation. If we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will be his lamb-like tenderness for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other to no one. Will Jesus be neutral? So this psalm is a warning to those who would refuse to come and find refuge in the mercy of God, who remain defiant and opposed and hard-hearted to the rule of God. It's a proclamation, a warning, and an invitation to come. To come under the rule of God. And then it specifically links the rule of God with a king with an anointed one, and with a people. In coming to God, you must deal with his anointed one. Look at the connection, the transition in verses 5 to 6. It says, then he, will speak, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. How is he going to do that? Saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so part of the warning and the response to the warning that is expected is, has to do with recognizing the rule of God's anointed. And then in the next verses, the anointed one, the king, in context, this original context, speaks. So the king is speaking here. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this is the Davidic king speaking here and he's remembering, recalling what God said in his anointing, in his coronation when he became king. That's what begotten refers to 
immediately in the context here. And the word to zoom in on here is the word son. Son. Now, if you've been in church long or read your Bible long, you're probably thinking, oh, son of God, that's Jesus. We'll get there. In various places, as we read the Bible, God's people as a whole are called the Son of God. God is like a father to his people. God engages them as a child. And so in this sense, the king over God's people is also a son of God as he represents the people. But then you have this promise made about a king from the line of David, which I mentioned earlier, and it'll be helped to read this. So in 2 Samuel 7, this is an important passage in the kind of flow of, of history throughout the Old Testament. God is speaking through to David, King David, through the prophet Nathan. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. There's that word. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, this is kind of like reading Psalm 2 because it's kind of confusing, right? Like, who is this talking about? This part of the way through, it seems to be, if, if you're kind of thinking about Jesus, it seems to be speaking about Jesus, but then it says when he sins and, you know, I'll punish him and all of this. This seems to have two different individuals, two different fulfillments in mind. Some of it seems to be fulfilled in the next king after David, Solomon, or perhaps another good king that follows. But then you have these bits about a forever kingdom about a throne established forever, and about God being a father to this, this individual. And this seems to, to push it out beyond. All of these human kings that came after David died. There is today no human king reigning on the throne of David. You know, you can't go somewhere in the world and find the throne of David and a human king reigning. And then to add to this, you have an addition, additional prophecies in Scripture that fill out this picture, this promise, this prophecy of a ruler to come from David uh, or from the line of Jesse, which was David's father. So another sim, uh, significant one in, is in Isaiah 11. And we, we, sing, you know, we sing some of this and, and speak of some of this around Christmas time. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. 
Again, if you were living in this time, it would have been reasonable to look at each of David's descendants and think, well, could he be it? Could this be the righteous shoot from the stump of Jesse? But none of them fit this description. Again, Solomon begins well, David's son. He gains much wisdom. People come to hear his wisdom, but then he ends horribly, turns to idols. And so when we get to the New Testament, the author of Hebrews picks up this idea about a son from both Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel, about there being a king called a son of God, and he applies it to Jesus. He says, that's Jesus. Just as the early disciples in Acts 4 said the, uh, this anointed one to come is, is Jesus. The biblical authors, the early church, understood that Jesus was this ultimate son of David, Messiah, son of God, to come. Physically speaking, Jesus is descended from David. Both of the genealogies that we have in Matthew and Luke make a point to say this both through his mom and, and um, through adoption through his father as well, his earthly father. But more than that, he, is, he fulfills what these prophecies say. He is the true and better Davidic king who is faithful, who is wise, who is righteous, who is a witness and bearer of God's presence and salvation, who succeeds in all the ways that Israel as a whole and its kings failed. And what Psalm 2 tells us is that this king to come will rule over all the earth. He will possess the, the nations and the ends of the earth. Again, what this is ultimately about is the rule of God and how we experience that rule on earth. We saw it in glimpses with Israel. We saw God begin to draw people to himself give them a home, and rule over them through a king. But that was all a mere shadow. That was all pointing forward to and showing the need for a better king, for a true savior. It was pointing forward to Jesus. God's rule over the world is in and through Jesus. God's true kingdom comes into the world in and through the person and work of Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene and he says the time, I mean, this is quite an arrogant statement, if not true. Jesus comes and says the time is fulfilled. Yeah, you know all of those thousands of years of prophecies and promises? Here they are in and through me. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so practically speaking, what this means is that, is, is that to oppose Jesus is to oppose God. To oppose the salvation that is in Jesus, in his life and death for sins, is to oppose God and his purposes. All that he was doing all throughout time. But to come to Jesus is to come to God. And to trust in Jesus and follow Jesus is to enter the kingdom of God and to be under the rule of God. 
Just as God identified himself with the, the king over Israel, God is, identifies himself with his divine human son, Jesus. Now, before moving to the, the final verses and, and the warning that we find there, I want to make one more important connection that will help apply this. In the Old Testament, the king represented the people. And so when we see that the, the, the king had a special relationship with God as the son of God, this wasn't only about the king. This was about God's people. God was identifying himself with a people. The conflict and plotting of the nations here is not only against God and not only against God's king or anointed one, it's also against God's people. And so today, to confess that Jesus is the true and final king and to align ourselves with him by faith in his person and work, we are also aligning ourselves with his people. We are saying that we're a part of the people of God, which is the church. That's part of what we acknowledge in baptism. Baptism is a recognition of being washed by the blood of Jesus for our sins and brought into the people of God, the church. It's also what we celebrate and recognize in communion. We, we are recognizing unity with Christ through his death for us and unity with his body the church. And so Jesus tells Peter that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, if you think about it, this is the same sort of thing that Psalm 2 is saying. God's purposes, God's people are not going to be defeated. This is the same hope and confidence that God's people are supposed to have then and now the plotting of the nations and rulers and peoples and kings against God and his people and his purposes against his King Jesus is in vain. It will not fail. Or the church will not fail, sorry. The church, says Paul, is a pillar and buttress of the truth. He also says that as a husband is to love his wife, so Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The Bible has no place, no concept of those who want to belong to God but not to his people of those who want to be a Christian but not be a part of the church. Yes, the church can be ugly and weak and immature and slow to learn and needing God's discipline just as Israel did. But God doesn't give up on the church. He dies for it. He works to purify and cleanse it. He continues to bear with it. God is enacting his rule and reign on earth through the church, through his people, not just individually, but corporately together. 
partly why Jesus says, they will know that you are my disciples if you, through your love for one another. You can't love one another very well if you are not with one another. This is where we begin to see God's reign on earth. And so part of the way that we apply and appropriate and take for ourselves the language and sentiment and hope and assurance of this psalm is by being a part of and committing to God's people, the church, God's, and God's purposes for and through the church. Because to be on the side of God's anointed, to belong to Jesus, is to belong to the church. Final verses. Now, therefore. So now is a transitional word that's, that's actually there in the, in the original. It's transitions in light of all that's been said. Here is what follows. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. And serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So these people set against God, nations, kings, rulers, peoples, are addressed directly. In light of all that's been said, be wise, be warned. In other words, know the futility of what you're doing. And don't do it. Don't set yourselves up against the Lord and his people and his purposes. And surely this was meant to be heeded by Israel's kings as well, and by the Israelites as well, which is why they, their lack of heeding this was why none of them fully lived up to this expectation, because they didn't fear God. And surely this is meant to be heeded by the church today as well, lest we cease to fear the Lord. Instead, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Kissing a ruler was a sign of like bowing down. It's just a sign of showing honor and respect and, and submission. That phrase rejoice with trembling is great. Actually, we sing that in, in our song, Rejoice. Um, just as we've, as I've mentioned a number of times recently, just the, the fear of the Lord that we, God's people are meant to have is one that is compatible with rejoicing and delighting and loving. It's not a it is a trembling. I can't say it's not a trembling, but it's right there. Um, but it's a fear that comes and draws near to God. Now, I won't spend long on this phrase, but some of you are probably uh, you had, thinking about that, that, that one phrase there in verse 12. Less, uh, For his wrath is quickly kindled. And you're probably thinking, well, doesn't the Bible say that God is slow to anger? Yes, it does. Many, many, many times. Um, we're not going to Spent a ton of time on this, but uh, I found a good explanation of this from John Piper. There may be others' explanations, but John Piper says, the, the word quickly may not be the best here. The word can mean quickly in the sense of suddenly. Therefore, I am inclined to think Psalm 212 means his wrath can break out suddenly. In other words, don't trifle with him in his patience, because suddenly it may run out and you be overtaken in wrath. Um, I mean, just... Thinking about the phrase slow to anger doesn't mean that there's no anger. Doesn't mean that anger doesn't ever run out. If you go on kissing his creation and not his son, suddenly you will find the fangs of a serpent in your lip. 
don't presume upon the patience of God, which is the point of the beginning of Romans 2, if you want to go read upon that. So this final bit here is a call for all the world, for all the nations and its rulers and peoples, to come to the Lord and find refuge in him, to see the futility of fighting and striving against him, and also to see the goodness of belonging to him and his people, and to come to him for refuge. The image we get here and throughout Scripture is not, is not simply, well, God is just, justly angry and wrathful, so you may as well be on his good side. No, the image is God is sovereign Lord over all. He's a good and gracious God and Savior. He rightfully deserves all praise and honor. He patiently calls us to turn to him, humbly pursues us, sacrificially gives himself for us, that we might turn to him for refuge, that we might know his love. But despite all of this, many reject him and go their own way. And even then, God gives warnings of the consequences of rejecting him and calls them and invites them to turn and serve and find refuge in him. And I'll just end with this. With, God, with these warnings and invitations, we who are God's people have a responsibility. Who is going to make known God's authority? Who is going to make known God's warning? Who is going to make known God's graciousness and his call? Who is going to say, there is blessedness in finding refuge in him, if not us. While we don't have to fear those who are set against God and his purposes, and we can ultimately trust them to God's final justice, there's more to this than that. We should also warn them and call them and invite them as we have opportunity. We should make known that there is a blessedness, a happiness, a goodness in finding refuge in God's mercy. We talked about this last week with Psalm 30. As we ourselves, from the depths of despair of our sin, cry out to God and find that in him there is forgiveness. This is true for sinners of all stripes and sizes. And we have a role to play in making this known, in being ambassadors for this message. Let's pray.